Ryan Stan here with a set front line joined today by Dr. Blake Briggs. And excitingly, we are at our first live conference for ASEP that uh, I've recorded at in over a year and a half. In fact, the last live ASEP conference for recording was um, in um, Denver, Colorado in October, it was uh, ASEP 19. And so we're back in person here at Emerald Coast Conference. Uh, we're gonna have a number of episodes taped here in Destin, Florida. You can almost uh, imagine and feel the humidity that is down here in June right now. Uh, it's not raining, but it is as wet as it would be uh, if it were raining. And so everything's thick, and we're going to hope the technology holds out. But Dr. Briggs is here uh, chatting with us. Uh, we're going to do a couple of topics with him um, that we'll separate into two episodes. The first that we're going to talk about today is pain in the neck, things that happen in the neck that you shouldn't want to, that you shouldn't miss. Uh, unless you just have just fantastic coverage for malpractice because some bad things can happen there. So Dr. Briggs, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, we'll hop right into pain in the neck. Uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, Ryan. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at the University of South Alabama in Mobile, Alabama, Department of Emergency Medicine. We're a relatively new, young, fresh program, but happy to be here at the Emerald Coast Conference. And you're right, it is a unique feeling to be in live, in person, at a conference uh, for emergency medicine. It's fantastic that you can feel kind of the energy everywhere. Everybody happy to, everybody's happy to be back. But I also do a, my own podcast, mm -hmm. uh, EM Board Bombs, Emergency Medicine Board Bombs. And I've been doing that with uh, Iltafat Hussein, who's at Wake Forest University, where I train too. And we've been doing it for a number of years. We work also with ASAP. We do a lot of the peer reviews. So uh, it's exciting to share some of uh, what we're going to talk about here at the conference. So yeah, the first talk that you mentioned was pain in the neck, and when, when I approached this topic, it's funny, I actually talked to my chair at Panacek uh, at South Alabama, and we were talking about topics to discuss here, and one of that came up was like, you know, I had just written a, a board bomb handout on cranial dissections, which is a one of those, not zebra cases, but less common that we think about in the emergency department, uh, I would say, and it's a sneaky diagnosis. Mm -hmm. You know, from what we've learned in med school, a lot of the, the myths about it are you know, that it's easy to find or has Horner syndrome and all that stuff. And one of the things that I learned quickly after researching the topic was that actually it's extremely difficult to diagnose in a lot of cases. And a lot with, along with other neck diagnoses, that's what the focus of my talk was. So really the big thing is when you have a patient coming in with neck pain, you know, 20% of these are going to be musculoskeletal. Uh, all the time. And the rest of them are going to be a variety of just either inflammatory, infectious, uh, post-traumatic, you know, other things that are also less concerning. And when they come to the ED, though, the, the two things you just have to think about all the time is, hey, if, if this is a young person uh, or is this a patient chronically ill, both are going to have risk factors even for these scary, can't-miss neck diagnoses. And, you know, you can recite all the red flags you want, and people do that all the time in med school and residency have these red flag symptoms, right? Can they ambulate? Do they have any fever? Do they have any uh, neurological deficits? You know, things that you would automatically think, oh, that's a no-brainer. Of course, I'm going to scan that. But a lot of these patients and the diseases we're going to talk about, they don't present that way at all. They come in sometimes with just neck pain. <laughs> well, with, with that, and that's, and that's actually a fantastic point, is yeah. if everybody presented like the book, emergency medicine and medicine in general would be pretty easy. Right. We don't have our exactly. MD and DO degrees and board certifications to look for the stuff that presents like the book, you know, the, yeah. the peri-umbilical pain that then localizes to the right lower quadrant with tenderness, anorexia, fever, 
um, and you know all the specific signs of moving legs and tap tests and heel tap and jumping up and down and all that other stuff. If things or you know substernal chest pain radiating up into the neck and left upper extremity that's been progressively getting worse, dyspnea, exertion, decreased activity tolerance. You know the obvious. If it's obvious. It's one of those reasons that those, you know, a computer could do it. I mean, a, a differential, right. you know, looking at the books could do it. But medicine is very much more nuanced in terms of presentations, not only the way people experience symptoms, the symptoms they present with, um, or even more challenging, the symptoms they don't present with mm -hmm. um, can be very challenging. And neck pain, I think we all will often assume. Um, I think we, we look at, of course, subarachnoids and meningitis and things like that in, in terms of original uh, diagnoses when people come in with neck pain. Um, but, you know, some of the stuff is rare. I mean, a person on, uh, another physician on a team I work with in motorsports had a, a, a vertebral dissection um, and no precipitating factors, anything of that nature. Um, so let's walk through some of those key diagnoses that, that we're going to hear about here at Emer Emerald Coast Conference. Absolutely. Yeah, so starting off with dissection, since I hinted it at. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not like I, <laughs> I went way out on a limb there on that yeah, one. Exactly. exactly. Uh, cranial artery dissections are, again, fabled, scary things. Uh, and they're going to be more spontaneous than traumatic. You know, I, I would say just starting off the three common myths about cranial artery dissections. Number one is that there has to be trauma associated with it. That's not the case at all. Only about 40% of these cases have minor trauma, we'd call it. And if you go look at the evidence, like up-to-date or uh, uh, other sites as well, you're going to see a laundry list of associated trauma, and it ranges from skiing to sexual intercourse to lifting a box the wrong way and, of course, chiropractors. Uh, I, sorry to the people out there that have a side hustle. They're running a chiropractor business. But uh, I've read somewhere that it, like one in 20,000 of these visits potentially could be a, a cervical artery dissection. It's hilarious because I mentioned this in the, the board bomb I produced and I got attacked on Twitter by chiropractors. I didn't know they were all over Twitter looking for these and they're like, where's the evidence for this? You know, there's no evidence that we cause cervical artery dissections, but uh, I just gave them the reference and went from there, but I dropped well, it. Well, actually the, <laughs> the sister of one of my neuro, uh, neuroscientist professors in med school died from oh, an adjustment, gosh. a dissection yeah. adjustment. Um, so yes, it does happen. There's um, YouTube it, videos to prove it, chiropractors. It's rare, <laughs> it's rare, I'll give them that, but yeah. Um, there's a lot of things I recommend, but jacking somebody's neck is not necessarily no, one of them. Especially a child uh, when they produce the videos on that. So yeah, you know, trauma, like I said, 40% of the cases, minor trauma. So you got to think about it when you think minor trauma, neck pain, that kind of thing in a young person. But remember, the majority of cases are not going to be traumatic. They're going to be spontaneous. The, the next myth is going to be the presentation. You know, people always think dissection the neck, Horner syndrome. That's mm -hmm. what everybody thinks. And in reality, only about 25% of cases have a Horner syndrome, which is a shockingly low number of cases, a vast minority. And really what you're going to see, even if there is a Horner syndrome present, it is not going to be, oh, there's anhydrosis and there's meiosis and pitosis. You're only going to have maybe a partial Horner syndrome on that ipsilateral side. So that's also a case where you're just potentially not going to see that. And then the last myth is that, oh, they're going to present as a stroke code. They're going to present with neurological symptoms. And while the vast majority of dissections eventually have ischemic symptoms, as we call them, from the dissection, about 70% of them will present initially with a normal neurological exam and maybe some quote-unquote funny symptoms like a subtle nystagmus or pulsatile tinnitus in the ear. One of my uh, professors at Wake Forest University, uh, 
Mary Claire O'Brien, when I was training there, she had a cranial artery dissection. That was the only symptom she had was a splitting headache and a neck pain and pulsatile tinnitus went to the emergency department. And of course, she's a professor, so she got scanned. But, you know, it's one of those cases where... <laughs> Full professors and lawyers, you're yeah. getting all the scans. Yeah, you're on scans. You're getting pan scanned. Yes. With contrast, CTA. Uh, but she, you know, they caught that and she had no neurological deficits up until the, she went to the OR. Uh, and so th those are the three big myths I want to start off with is something to think about. And so to, to, you know, then you're asking yourself, well, if I'm not looking for that, where do I tailor my exam and history? Well, you know, you're still going to take the minor trauma history. You're still going to ask about that. Uh, and of course, you're going to do a detailed neuro exam. You're going to do all that. But I, this is where you ask those detailed history questions. Like, do you have any tinnitus? Uh, you know, doing a detailed eye exam where you're not skipping over a nystagmus. Looking for that history of nausea and vomiting. And then, you know, the last thing to think about is this headache. What is the origin of this headache and neck pain? And, you know, headache's going to be more associated with carotid artery dissection. Ne neck pain is more with vertebral artery dissection. And just an aside, uh, people always get confused on the difference between the two, vertebral artery and carotid artery dissection. To, to be completely honest, both have very similar presentations uh, in their symptoms. The vertebral arteries are going to have a little more headache. I mean, excuse me, the vertebral arteries are going to have a little more neck pain than the carotid artery. And the vertebral artery dissections are usually slightly more associated with neck trauma, of course, compared to the carotid artery. Uh, but for the most part, both have the same type of ischemic symptoms and all that. And when you compare both of those together, uh, carotid artery and vertebral artery dissections, uh, both are going to have a non-thunderclap onset headache. You know, people always think, oh, thunderclap, scary, bad. That's going to be your subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, type of presentation, but this is more of a gradual onset type of headache uh, that becomes severe over time. Those are the things you look out for, the main three things. And people always wonder, okay, what's the, what's the big end point of these? You know, what are we thinking about dissection? What are the complications? Well, similar to an aortic dissection, you have this the loss of that intimal layer, right? And the, it dissects up into the brain, and a lot of scary things can happen. One, you have just hypoperfusion, and you have a watershed type of stroke infarct. The second is it forms its own clot, right? This is a endothelial injury, you know, uh, hyperinflammable inflammatory state in that blood vessel that's going to cause a thromboembolism. And then you have an acute stroke from that too. And then lastly, and perhaps the most sinister uh, when I read about it was uh, it can dissect up into the intracranial vessels and cause a subarachnoid hemorrhage when it blows. Uh, probably a scary reason not to think about giving thrombolytics to these people. But that's, Don't that's tell that comes to the in. folks who like to push that as soon as they walk in at 30 second. Yeah. No, what, everybody needs to get uh, everybody needs TPA, TPA yeah, right now, needs, yeah. as fast as we can possibly give it. <laughs> exactly. So we've got the dissections yeah. um, and some of the things that we can look for, keeping sure. that index of suspicion uh, high. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with the context and, and, and the presenting symptoms, what's different, of course, with a lot of the... Uh, those that I've seen those posterior circulation strokes that are often associated with that dizziness and mm -hmm. vertigo type symptoms and you mentioned some of the vomiting that doesn't get better with time and symptoms and you know I, I, one thing that I've learned kind of moving forward in my career in emergency medicine is that you know if something just doesn't come together like you, you expect it would in terms mm -hmm. of the expected course with treatments and symptoms and presentation then you dig deeper, don't just write it off. I mean, the number of times that we've had things that we've said, oh crap, I mean, how many times could I possibly miss that because we just happened to scan it or happened to image it? Yes. And you find something that you weren't, weren't expecting. Now, of course, there's gonna be stuff that slipped through, but, and, and you, we can't be 100% all the time just because at some point with the interventions and scanning, or, you know, false positives and the risks of evaluation itself, you know, we, we have to keep that in mind. 
Um, but those are some things, as you mentioned, kind of looking at some of those more subtle symptoms and deficits, uh, even those that the patient may not have picked up that they're having thus far um, may be something more worrisome. Some are, what are some of the other things that in the neck that we're going to worry about that we're not just going to write off with some uh, heat, rest, and anti-inflammatories? Uh, well, another that would uh, probably be treated with heat, rest, and anti-inflammatories until it kills you would be Lamier syndrome. Um, that's another commonly missed, commonly not talked about neck disease. And it's so funny because, you know, when I quiz uh, residents and students on shift and I talk to them, hey, why are we treating strep throat today? Or why are we treating this person's pharyngitis? And they say, oh, it's because of rheumatic fever. That's the automatically wrong answer. You know, it's the classic med school reason why we treat pharyngitis as rheumatic fever, even though, you know, rheumatic fever cases are, I don't know, know the percent, but they're non-existent in the United States, new cases. And uh, maybe in the southeast a little bit higher because of poor access to care, but <laughs> in general, well, I mean, pretty rare. That's it. I mean, there's actually a question now on, yeah. you know, with the strep, do you actually, does it even exactly. really exist anymore right. in terms of, of that diagnosis? Because that is, you're right, that's, that's the standard yes. answer that's going to come forward in terms of why are we going ahead and treating yeah. the strep throat? And I mean, honestly, the answer is because we treat all kinds of things that don't necessarily have to be treated with antibiotics. <laughs> and yeah. you know, that's the standard. I mean, you go to a you go to a walk-in clinic somewhere, if you, you're either going to get an x-ray, a a, a, an x-ray, an <laughs> antibiotic, or both. Yeah. It's like I, I, I have people that get referred all the time. Yeah. I have an ankle fracture. I say, well, what antibiotic do they start you on? And it's not unusual. They say, well, I am on, <laughs> on so-and-so. What you're telling me is ithromycin is not antiviral? It is. For well, bronchitis? you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that from the way it's prescribed across this country. So Lemire's syndrome. Yes. Yeah, Lemire's or Lemire, I've heard. I've heard different variations well, on it. Well, it's like medicine. It's either a sonometer, <laughs> a centimeter, the exactly. duodenum or duodenum, whichever yeah. one it D is. Depends how sophisticated you want to sound. Wanna, you want to yeah, sound, exactly. yes, exactly. But it's interesting, you know, last fall I did a, a podcast, board bomb podcast with uh, Rob Centaur from mm -hmm. uh, Birmingham who did all the pharyngitis, the Centaur score, all that stuff. And it's so funny because that was one of the first times, you know, I've heard of Lemire syndrome, and that was one of the first times he was really selling that. He was saying, hey, this is why we treat pharyngitis. And he's exactly right. This is the reason we treat pharyngitis that's bacterial. We're worried about bacterial pharyngitis in young people. And Lemire is, is a rare condition, but when it does happen, it's absolutely devastating. And it's a septic thrombophobitis of the internal jugular vein. What happens is, is you typically begin with an, some type of oral pharyngeal infection, and it frequently involves inflammation of the wall of the vein, and then it causes a subsequent uh, infected thrombus, and that thrombus can break off and embolize, basically, and almost like endocarditis. It embolizes to the lungs most commonly, and then in second most common, it's joints and cause septic arthritis. And the bug that's causing all this is not strep, uh, strep pharyngitis, group A strep, it's going to be Fusobacterium uh, necrophorum. And it's one of those bugs that it lives in the mouth. We all have heard of it. Dentists know it. And it's one of those anaerobes, gram-negative anaerobes, that's a scary bug when it gets out into the bloodstream. Uh, obviously, no one really wants gram-negative anaerobes floating around their blood. But this is one of those conditions that's commonly not talked about, commonly not really seen. And that's because the quote-unquote classic physical exam findings are probably not going to be there. This whole, oh, well, I'm going to see the neck bulging, you know, which mm -hmm. you know, you'll look on Google images if you're looking right now, and you'll see tons of images of swollen necks, red necks, painful necks. And unfortunately, that's just not there, especially early on in the first week. And this condition has a range of, you know, after the sore throat begins and the URI of respiratory symptoms begin, I don't know, about one to three weeks I've read. I've read seven days, Bob Centaur was telling me, all the way up to three weeks out. So it's a wide range of, hey, I treated my sore throat three weeks ago, uh, as in I didn't get antibiotics, but I took some anti-inflammatories, but I'm still not feeling better. 
you know, you have to be careful in these patients not just to say, well, your neck looks fine, you're moving in all directions, but you have a quote-unquote persistent fever at home, I would not completely dismiss that. You know, if they were having any quote-unquote rigors or if they you look in their throat and they still have a tonsillitis and they still have a sore throat, they still may have some dysphagia. And you could also see, you know, we don't know the percents on these because the cases are so rare. Uh, there was just a report I read on this that had 100 cases in it and thought this was a breakthrough of case reports when they had 100 of them together. And so most of the information comes from this main report that came out a few years ago. But trismus can also happen, uh, you know, tenderness when you palpate that area of the neck. And what people do, unfortunately, if they're doing a cursory physical exam or they're not used to seeing this condition, they'll see the fever and triage, you know, they'll see the sore throat and they'll go do the neck exam and they'll move their, you know, fingers under the jawline and say, oh, that's a lymph node. You know, mm -hmm. I'm palpating a lymph node and it's tender to touch and that's it. In reality, what you're touching is the thrombus in the <laughs> internal jugular vein, which is a, a, a scary thing and not, not a cervical lymph node. And so the, really the bottom line to think about this with Lamier is it's, it's gonna be young people with a recent pharyngitis-like illness, persistent fever, tender neck, and or pulmonary symptoms. You know, and the pulmonary symptoms could be as simple as, you know, dry cough, that sort of thing, shortness of breath. And what you're going to see is like a quote-unquote endocarditis uh, pulmonary septic emboli picture. And really, as Bob Suntor said perfectly about this, is an endocarditis of, endocarditis of the neck. That's what you need to think about this, is that it's going to be rigor, sore throat, not improving, neck swelling, and pain. And that's what's scary about this. And, you know, I've seen some cases. I've had one, actually I had a Lamiers uh, last fall. Um, it always happens right after you do a podcast on it, right? Mm -hmm. That's what that's no, what always so happens. Everybody, is everybody that... be ready in your ERs out there. This is coming. <laughs> yes, it's coming. Don't rash about it. Yeah. Hundred cases, nothing. Exactly. And uh, what I did was I had a uh, it was a, a teenager that had neck neck swelling. His was thankfully not that hard, and he had a persistent thro sore throat, fever, rigors. And we did this uh, CTA uh, CT, excuse me, face first, and we saw this abscess, and we saw that it extended down mm -hmm. uh, a little bit close to the vein wall. And so uh, we admitted him, got antibiotics, uh, consult the ENT, and I noticed over the next couple of days, the upstairs team was getting ultrasounds, serial ultrasounds. And I've read that these are not that good. And so I would actually, you know, as much as I love ultrasound, I'd put that aside for this case, is that ultrasound is not gonna help you here, and that the best thing to do for these patients is, a, is CTA head and neck. And what you need to do is look for any of that thrombophobitis that's forming in the vein, and ultrasound can miss up to 20% of cases. And uh, while you're at it, if you're really concerned they have pulmonary symptoms, go ahead and CT their chest too, because you're going to look for those septic emboli. And really the last point here is going to be the treatment. You know, what are you starting them on? And it's funny because uh, myself included was a big fan of Unison, you know, mm -hmm. ampicillin, solbactam. And it turns out the resistant rates are climbing uh, uh, against fusobactam, fusobacterium, excuse me. And, uh, and so what you're going to need to do is probably Zosin or ceftriaxone plus flagyl. I know everybody makes fun of flagyl, but it's still, I mean, it, it's it's still there, and, and right. I, actually, I get the the eyes lifted now more for Unison because it seems like Unison was like the big hot thing for yeah. at least during the early 2000s, and now the Zosin has completely taken over. Right. And what's interesting about the Lemiers or Lemier uh, is that <laughs> the signs of the internal jugular venous thrombosis it's not going to be common. No. I mean, the numbers are quoted at 30 to 40 percent are going to have those signs. I mean, it seems like the most predominant symptom. Uh, other than the preceding sore throat mm -hmm. or pharyngitis type picture within that week to two week range before they start is going to be that the, the fevers mm -hmm. associated with fevers and rigors, as you mentioned, that consistent uh, high fevers and rigors associated with it. But again, you know, not completely there. I mean, all of us have, all of us have had the patients come in and say, I've been running a fever, how high? I don't know, I don't own a thermometer. So we don't actually know, but they always, you know, it seems like the only time folks take something 
you know, for a fever is right before they come to the emergency department. So now we're yes. 99.3 or 98.6 or, or, you know, somewhere completely normal with the exception of pediatrics where, you know, it's, it's kind of the classic, I didn't treat it because I wanted to prove it that they actually had a fever yeah, kind exactly. of picture. Yeah. Um, so Lemieres is, is one, to, one to think about. And, um, you know, it falls under that category of relatively not significant head or neck related infections mm -hmm. that then spread and cause devastating consequences. Devastated, you know, it's, it's still going to be completely, it's going to be very rare, but again, yeah. if they're not getting better, that picture doesn't fit uh, something that definitely needs to be uh, considered in terms of imaging studies. So what am I, what else am I looking for? Uh, and one more point just to, oh, okay. uh, about this, just to drive this point home, mm -hmm. 50, about 50% 50 of these patients are going to need surgery, uh, which Ooh. is crazy to think about. Uh, it's a shocker, but that's something you need to leave that topic thinking about when you're in the emergency department uh, and to keep you up at night. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's what we need. It's, not, it's more yeah. nightmares. So the last case is something that is, I think, talked about in the back of your head, but not commonly thought about when you're out in triage examining neck pain. That's going to be giant cell arteritis. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the good news about this one is that this is not a young person disease. And it's virtually unheard of for someone less than 50 years old to get this condition. And I, we rarely get to say that in medicine. So it's a nice feeling to say, hey, less than 50, don't worry about it. It's just unheard of. Um, it's kind of like the heterotopic pregnancy we're going to talk about uh, in a few minutes, about ectopic pregnancy in the future. <laughs> it's one of those things that's just a zebra diagnosis. So we, older than 50 years old, this is what you're thinking about, headache, neck pain when they come in. And you're probably thinking to yourself right now, if you're listening, saying, wait a minute, neck pain. This is a, a temporal, you know, headache kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? You know, eye blindness, all that stuff, bad stuff. And in reality, uh, you know, in terms of symptoms of presentation, you're right. The headache is going to be the most common. Over 80% of patients have the headache associated with giant cell arteritis, and it's usually on that side of the head. However, a, a recent case report series I, I read before presenting this was that actually the headache can do whatever it wants, uh, like most conditions. If we haven't made that clear yet, all the conditions that we've talked about, they can do headache and neck pain however they want. It could be you know, on the same side of the neck. It could be the back of the neck. It could be the front of the neck, it, uh, front of the head, front back of the head, uh, retroorbital. Could it move in different directions? It doesn't matter. I would put any stock whatsoever in the patient saying, is it a pressure or dull headache? Is it a sharper, pounding headache? Whatever. The only thing I'd ever pay attention to, of course, as we've talked about earlier, was is a quote-unquote thunderclap onset, and that mm -hmm. lets you worry about subarachnoid hemorrhage. But in this case, the two most common symptoms for Johnson water ice are going to be the new onset headache, which could be any caliber, and then jaw claudication. And the jaw claudication is going to be around that neck area. So you're right. I am kind of playing the game here. It's not really neck pain, but you should think about it when you think the patient's having inferior uh, auricular pain kind of right around their ear, right around that mandibular angle, and that's where their neck's hurting. Hey, it hurts when I turn my neck to the side a little bit, or hey, the, it's, it's there even when I don't move my neck, that pain, uh, not associated with nausea or vomiting, maybe a headache. And it's actually really interesting because the jaw claudication part, we should really be paying attention to this in these patients because even that pain that's at rest or with eating, that pain has the highest correlation with positive biopsies in the temporal artery, which I thought was really interesting to learn about. I never knew that. And they've studied that and they showed when the biopsies were positive, patients had jaw claudication in over 60% of cases. And when they were negative, the biopsies were negative, the patient had jaw claudication in less than 4% of cases. So it's extremely uh, relatable to this condition. That's good to know about. What are the things that are not relatable? Unfortunately, all the vision stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we're always thinking, oh, how's your vision, 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 because we're always worried. Of course, that's the most devastating consequence of this disease is irreversible vision loss, which can be swift, it can be fast, 
uh, up to 50% of patients uh, untreated, even in this era, if it's missed, will lose their vision, and even scarier, it'll go to the other eye uh, as well, uh, on the, on the uh, contralateral side, and they will lose bilateral vision loss, and it's irreversible. And it can occur usually in a weak timeline. So again, thinking about these patients, sending them home, you know, oh, come back if it gets worse, you got about a week time until this thing could manifest in, you know, irreversible vision loss. And so unfortunately, all the things we think about, the temporal artery tenderness when you palpate there, the brewery that you could uh, auscultate, and then visual disturbances, all those are like less than 20% on the initial presentation. And so what you need to think about, like I said, are the headaches, unfortunately, in an older patient, we need to at least entertain the thought of giant cell arteritis, and then the jaw claudication. Does it get worse with chewing, that pain, or is that pain persistent kind of right around the mandibular angle? And then unfortunately, the last uh, quote-unquote helpful, I, I put quotes around helpful because it's not that helpful, is gonna be fever and constitutional symptoms. You know, the classic room, uh, rheumatologic, mm -hmm. you know, uh, inflammatory symptoms. And more times than not, of course, uh, you just said, you know, the urgent care comment earlier, uh, in general, these patients, not just in urgent care, but their primary care physician in the emergency department, uh, they're gonna come in and they're gonna say, yeah, I've had a fever and my neck hurts. And like, okay, well, here's the ZPAC and we'll see you in a week. And more than not, we always associate fever with infection. In this case, it's, it's not. And another thing to ask about if you're an all-star would be a history of polymyalgia rheumatica. And, and over 50% of cases of polymyalgia rheumatica, and we all remember from med school, that's the, the shoulder, joint, pelvic girdle, aches and pains, and they may have a rat, heliotrope rash, as we used to call it, and they have that uh, cape-like distribution mm -hmm. of pain right over their shoulders and their neck, and over 50% of those cases are associated with giant cell arteritis. It's a huge risk factor for it. And so those are kind of the main points to think about giant cell arteritis, remember that. So it, you mentioned you really don't need to think about it under age 50. It's mm -hmm. over age uh, 50 most commonly in Caucasian uh, mm -hmm. females. Uh, the, the wheelhouse age group is that 70, 70 to 80 age group. Mm -hmm. um, but thinking about it from that standpoint, um, we always hear about the tenderness of the scalp or the, temp, uh, the temples with it. And the challenge we have, this is one of those that's a challenging diagnosis because it's one that fits within the keyhole biases of emergency medicine. And what I mean by that is we are so hung up um, and focused, laser focused on fitting people either into the sepsis, ACS, or stroke basket. Yes. That that's great in terms of the intervention if it is in fact one of those diagnoses, but in this case, it's one of those things that once you try to fit somebody into one of those baskets, you naturally have bias and it's really, really hard to try to pull yourself out and think outside the box. And as emergency physicians uh, and then uh, other healthcare providers, you know, you, you need to make sure that you try to keep that differential open and don't allow the banners on the side of your hospital in terms of what kind of center you are dictate the fact that that's what the diagnosis is going to be. And, you know, that's one reason I'm not as much a fan of let's rush them over the CT scanner and run this entire stroke alert on folks or, you know, just run them down a sepsis type panel and hitting them with a bunch of antibiotics and um, getting cultures and, you know, fluids that would drown anybody type approaches because we have to then still approach as a, as a a uh, very broad differential diagnosis. In fact, my wife, who's uh, internal medicine pediatrics hospitalist, um, she said, I wouldn't, didn't want to hear the story. I wanted to hear the, the age, you know, gender age room um, because I didn't, she didn't want to have a preconceived bias going into the room of this is what it is. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we want to make sure that we have a, 
uh, you want to make sure you still go into that room with a broad uh, differential diagnosis when you walk in there on any of these. Any closing remarks and thoughts on uh, the neck pain in, in patients? Right. You know, and in finishing out giant arteritis, you're exactly right. It's one of those conditions that just doesn't fit neatly into our little buckets that we think about as mm -hmm. common uh, presentations in the emergency department. And probably the worst thing, just to emphasize your point and drive it home, there's no imaging test for it. You know, <laughs> you can't just, the previous two conditions I talked about, you can get a CTA in them, right? Head and neck. And, you know, if you're really cautious, you CTA uh, a lot of people you're really worried about, and you're probably going to catch something, right? This condition is not a CTA diagnosis, the giant arteritis. It is a clinical diagnosis, and you got to make a decision kind of earlier on. And one thing I didn't mention earlier was that the ESR that we always rely on is, yeah, it's good, but it's good, but not perfect. You know, they, again, a case report series, they found that probably in about uh, the, uh, the majority of patients, it will be positive. Uh, however, in 5% of patients or so, it'll be a falsely negative value. And so that's a low number, 5%. But I wouldn't just, you know, go the route of, hey, if they have a concerning story and your ESR is negative, don't just say, oh, well, it can't be dried so or send them home. So it is an automatic, not a uh, uh, reassuring test. I wouldn't just a be-all, end-all test, right? Interestingly, the, the, the studies that are out there um, showing that with giant cell arteritis, um, limited sensitivity, the CRP alone is 86.9%, mm -hmm. ESR is 84.1% combined. Uh, specificity, though, uh, specificity of 97%. Right. Um, but as you can see, you know, the ESR is normal in 5 to 30% of right. patients right. with giant cell arteritis. And, you know, so that's, again, index of suspicion, getting that picture, and, and then moving forward with those patients. Any closing thoughts yeah. on tips for us from sure. an emergency medicine standpoint. Right. So uh, neck pain scary. Yes. <laughs> so, but yeah, again, you know, we, we said earlier, a vast majority of patients, 20% or so, of the adult population is going to have neck pain at some point in their life. And the vast majority of these are going to be musculoskeletal and benign. The thing for you to do is that every patient with neck pain, I believe, like a headache, deserves a neurological exam. I think it's a quick, easy test you can do, and it's part of our physical exam. So I would say those patients deserve a, a neurological exam if you're concerned about something else going on. And this is where paying attention to the subtleties really comes into play. It's not the, hey, when's your neck pain start? A couple days ago, okay, what makes it worse? What makes it better? I'm talking about the specific questions you should be asking your patients. Of, is there any ringing in your ears? Are you having any vision problems? You know, directly asking these patients questions because a lot of the patients, one, may not feel that that's important to share, you know, or they may not feel that's related, some of these questions. So, you know, making sure when you have those young patients that have uh, persistent infectious symptoms, think about if they have any neck pain for Lamiere's. If you have young or old patients uh, with strange neurological symptoms that may not activate a code stroke, but they have neck pain and a headache, or they're a quote-unquote atypical migraine, as we may dismiss it as, think about the potential for a dissection. And then lastly, anybody older than 50 years old with a headache, uh, you need to think, and potentially neck pain, you need to think about gentle arteritis. So always do your quote-unquote red flag symptoms like ambulation, fever, and all that stuff, looking for any of the things that stand out. But that's a good place to start, is paying attention and a good history. Take, you know, we always think, oh, that's going to take so much time. But in reality, gosh, it really doesn't take that much time at all to spend an extra five minutes in the room doing a quick neuro exam and asking those detailed questions while you're doing the neuro exam. Uh, I think that really does add to making sure you don't miss anything. Talking with Dr. Blake Briggs and uh, pain in the neck from a talk giving here at Emerald Coast Conference in Destin, Florida. Um, how can folks get in touch with you? check out your podcast, things of that nature. Sure, yeah. So you can easily find us on Twitter. We have uh, over several thousand followers, but my personal Twitter is at Blake Briggs, MD. 
And our website, if you want to check out uh, emergency medicine board moms, you know, we work, as I said, with ASAP, and we do a lot of the peer review uh, question. Uh, we basically take their questions that are really good, and we spice them up and make them. And we're known for our STEMs. Our, our motto is come for the STEM, stay for the content. So we usually make outrageously funny, stupid question STEMs, and we go through board prep. But it's not just board prep. We do interactive uh, question-based learning. And you can check us out learn all about us at emboardbombs.com as well. And again, my Twitter's at BlakeBriggsMD. And you'll be hearing a little bit more from him very shortly, um, talking about ectopic pregnancies in the emergency department, uh, another podcast that we're going to record uh, here back-to-back uh, -back here in just a minute, but uh, you'll hear it here the next week or so uh, with regard to more topics from uh, Dr. Briggs. As for me, you can contact me, rstanton at asep.org, rstanton at asep.org, at Everyday Med on Twitter. Uh, check us out on all the platforms. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. You're getting the downloads every single week. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASEP Frontline. Mm -hmm.